Well, this is Pentecost Sunday. Uh, most uh, Christians uh, that I know uh, know very little about Pentecost Sunday. They know much more about the Holy Spirit, but Pentecost Sunday's not always observed. It should be. Uh, let me just tell you some things about Pentecost. Pentecost, of course, is that event that is recorded in Acts chapter 2 when uh, Jesus' promise was fulfilled when he said, I will send you the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit came upon those gathered disciples, and he filled the church. Pentecost also takes its name from the word uh, penta, means, uh, in this case, Pentecost means 50, and and 50 days following um, Easter, we have Pentecost. It occurs on Sunday, just as Easter does. Actually, it's 49 days in Jewish counting. Pentecost actually comes 10 days following Jesus' ascension. As far as we can tell, it's 10 days. Jesus was here approximately 40 days uh, following his resurrection, and he taught his disciples, and then he was ascended to the Father. And 10 days later, we have Pentecost. Uh, Pentecost is also known as the birth of the New Testament church. That's why it should be celebrated as well. Uh, unlike a Christmas and Easter, as I say, most Christians are not aware of Pentecost Sunday. Pentecost was actually observed by Jesus. Now, how in a poss possibly could he do that? How could he observe Pentecost? Because it's an Old Testament. It's an Old Testament. Shavuot is the Hebrew name for the event. And it means uh, the Feast of Weeks. If I were to describe to you the kind of Pentecost that Jesus observed, it was 49 days or 50, 50 by our counting, for, I mean 49 by Jewish counting, um, uh, 50 days following the second day of Passover. Jesus would have been in Jerusalem celebrating Pentecost. What would he have been celebrating? Not the coming of the Holy Spirit per se. He would have been celebrating the harvest feast as the people came up to Jerusalem to present their first fruits. In fact, Pentecost is called first fruits. He would also have gone up to Jerusalem and with the Jewish community there, these great pilgrim feasts, they would have remembered and rehearsed the receiving of the law on Mount Sinai. And so that was his experience of Pentecost. When he sent his Holy Spirit, it transformed that, if you will, into a Christian context. And now we celebrate Pentecost as a celebration of the coming of the Holy Spirit. We remember, though, that the Spirit gave the law. We remember also that it was the Spirit that led Jesus finally in obedience to his Father that led him to the cross. And it was the Spirit that raised him on the third day. Well, I want to talk a bit today about Pentecost. There is a sense in which there are three ways that the Holy Spirit is received. The broadest way and the way that is not discussed much in the Bible is found in Romans chapter 8 toward the end, just following the text that was read to you. And that is that God's Holy Spirit is recreating or remaking all things. 
Paul says the spirit groans, creation groans, awaiting its redemption. But that is a, if you will, a, a, a doctrine and a side that we, we don't know that much about because the Bible has not revealed a great deal. But it's extremely encouraging, isn't it? To think that the Spirit of God is working in all things. He not only created, but He's recreating. The uh, second way that the Spirit was received is by the church, collectively. There is a sense in which the receiving of the Spirit is for the church, just as Jesus died for the church. And in this sense, you do not share that dimension of the Spirit unless you're involved in the fellowship of the saints. There are those who have the name Christian and believe firmly that they are Christians, but they don't share in the fellowship of the saints. Uh, it doesn't mean very much to them. And so it, it makes one wonder, uh, what spirit do they really have? If it does not lead to a greater experience of the spirit. And you can only find that in the church. But we also find, and particularly in the text that uh, is for today, that the Holy Spirit is received individually. The Holy Spirit gives gifts, for instance, to his people. The Holy Spirit, of course, is that one who enables us to develop the fruit of the Spirit and to walk in the Spirit. And so I want to focus on the individual receiving of the Spirit today. And I have a few points to make. And the first one is simply this. I want to make this point that if you receive the Lord Jesus Christ, according to this text, you also receive the Spirit now, that seems like a very simple statement, but that understanding does not pertain in a great deal of Christianity. Uh, in, in many quarters, the idea is that you receive Christ on one occasion and later you receive the fullness of the baptism of the Spirit in a second event. But I want you to understand that this text is not saying that. And I want to carefully look at the text here. If we go back to verse 12, he says, Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, but it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. And notice what he says next. Because... Those who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. Now, that's a simple statement. Those who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. But we find this over and over in this particular chapter. If you look at verse 9, you will see again that the connection between Christ and the Holy Spirit, uh, that connection is one that cannot be broken, they are inseparable. You, however, he says in verse 9, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit. If the Spirit of God lives in you, and if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ... Now, notice how he slips into this. Just like in the book of Acts that I mentioned last week. The Holy Spirit is also the Spirit of Christ. And he goes on to say, and if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ... So you cannot and must not ever think of the Holy Spirit as being separate from the person and work of Jesus Christ in any way, shape, or form. 
If you receive Christ, you receive the Spirit. If you experience Christ, you experience the Spirit. It would be wrong to separate the Spirit from Christ. It leads all to all kinds of craziness. It leads to, if you will, to a kind of, of uh, Greek expression, uh, ancient Greek pagan expression of, of religion. Uh, there was a, a phrase that you know. We talk about enthusiasm, but in, in the Greek language, it means God in you. And uh, a, a Greek may demonstrate to his fellow Greeks that he had more of the gods within him than others by a frenetic and an overly enthusiastic expression of things. Now, I'm not opposed to enthusiasm. I need more of it. And some of you do, too. I'm not opposed to enthusiasm. Commonly understood. But what is not legitimate is to seek experiences apart from Christ and his word. They go together. Uh, that's, that's why we have, if you will, uh, the expressions of Christianity in parts of the world that sociologists, Christian sociologists wonder whether they are Christian or not. They're so separated from Christ. But it is also true that those who are led by the Spirit of God are characterized by the Spirit. And let me talk about the evidence of being the Spirit dwelling in you. It has very little to do with gifts and talents. Those who most tend to separate the Spirit from Christ are also those who are apt to emphasize the gifts and talents, especially the extraordinary gifts, if you will, such as glossolalia, which is a big word that means speaking in tongues. This sort of thing. Or healing. I've, I've heard people say, Pastor, I knew that the power of God was in that place. People were being healed and they were falling over and on and on and on. Well, that's very little a sign of the Spirit. Remember in the time of Moses, uh, the magicians of Egypt were able to duplicate, mimic, and maybe even in some ways receive a false power to do things that are quite amazing. The sign that you've received the Spirit is not in amazement. It is simply in the fruit of the Spirit, or it has to do with character. How do you treat people? Do you treat them fairly? That's more to be apt that the Spirit is with you than any other way. Are you faithful in your relationships? That's much more of a demonstration that you have the Spirit than any other way. Is there a spirit of kindness upon your heart and fairness? Is there a spirit of joy and meekness? We all struggle with these things, but nonetheless... We must remember that if we do indeed have the Spirit of God, that is evidenced in character more than what you can do or the way you look. And so when we come to this passage of Scripture, we must not separate the Spirit from Christ. And when He dwells within us, He is changing us into the image of Christ Himself. And that is why character matters more than your powers. The second point I want you to see is this. How do we know then that we have received the Spirit? I've said in part due to character, but let me, let me go on uh, even further here. I uh, sometimes will watch YouTube videos of certain lectures, and I choose my lecturers carefully. 
There's a lot of stuff, if you will, on the vi video on YouTube. I, I, don't, I guess these videos are on YouTube. I don't know. I usually go to the website. Recently, I went to Alvin Plantica's website and listened to a lecture. Who is Alvin Plantica? I suppose that uh, that is a new name to you. You might figure out right away it's Dutch. As a matter of fact, uh, it's Frisian. I'm glad I don't have Bob Banjin here to challenge my judgment on that, but I believe it's Frisian. Maybe Rank will tell me for sure. <laughs> Alvin Plantica. Now, he is considered one of the greatest philosophers of the 20th century and may continue to be in the 21st century. He was born in 1930. And in his early 80s, he continues to have a very active, lively mind addressing some of the great problems in philosophy. He is an analytical philosopher. He specializes in logic and words and analyzing them. And so this interviewer was interviewing him and and he says, what proof do you have for the existence of God? He says, well, uh, all the traditional proofs, I, I, he says, they, they have some value, but not a lot. It may not be possible, he said, really, and if I could interpret him in my own words, it may not be possible to really and definitively prove that God is there through logic, through uh, reasoning. And then he says, well, why, why do you believe in God then? He says, well, I experience God in my heart and life. Uh, and I experience God particularly in the person of Jesus Christ. It rings true to me, he says, when I read the scriptures. It rings true. Here's one of the great philosophers saying, it just rings true. Now, why can you make a statement like that? I think based upon the text, and I want you to notice very carefully how... The Apostle Paul says that it can ring true for us. He says in the text, the Spirit of God bears witness with our spirits that we are the children of God. It's that simple. Why doesn't the world believe in God? There is no inner witness. You can't have it without Christ. There's no inner testimony. You say, Pastor, why does it have to be that way? Why, why can't we all just, just depend on our own strength to figure it out? Because you are dealing with the infinite. And logically, it makes no sense to believe that the finite can discover the infinite or reason itself to the infinite. The infinite must come to us. And he has in Jesus Christ, and that Christ sent his spirit, and his spirit gives testimony inwardly in our hearts and lives that we belong to him. Early in chapter 5, it says the spirit poured out the love of God in our hearts. In another place, it says that the spirit gives us his peace. Here in the text, it says God has not given us a spirit of fear, but he has given us a spirit of confidence, which will be my next point. It's a marvelous thing when we encounter God in the person of Jesus Christ through the power of his spirit. Our hearts cry, Abba, Father, and we are able to pray the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples when he pr prayed and taught them, Our Father who art in heaven, Abba. 
the Aramaic word for father, and it's an intimate word. We know him in Christ. As a matter of fact, in Galatians chapter 4, Paul is going over some of these same themes. And in chapter 4, he says, and that we know God, but then he turns around and says, it's better that God knows us. And the sign that God knows you is that spirit in your heart that is able to behold your interest in Jesus Christ and to call God Father. That is the work and the testament of the Holy Spirit. This leads to one thing else. You can have the assurance that you know God. Now, 1,000%? No, nothing in life is ever 1,000%. Remember, we are finite. But you can know that you know God. You can have assurance. You can have assurance that your wife or your husband loves you, can't you? You can have assurance, your children can, that they're loved by you. We can have assurance in Christ through the power of the Spirit that God loves us and He is with us. This assurance comes from the Spirit. All kinds of things assail us in life. Health problems, money problems, suffering. Through it all, you can know the peace of God. You can know God and be assured that he knows you. And that makes the difference. There is a final point here that needs to be made. A final point, and it is simply this. We have great confidence that we know the Lord, but it is also true because of that confidence. We can also rest assured that we are heirs of God and joint heirs with Jesus Christ. Now, this is a wonderful ending to this passage. If you look at the passage again with me, uh, starting uh, here, he says, And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirits that we are God's children. Now, he says, if we are children of God, follow the logic. If we are children of God and co-heirs with Jesus Christ, if indeed we share his suffering in order that we may also share in his glory. We share something. We are heirs of God, heirs with Jesus Christ. What does this mean? It means that the destiny of Jesus Christ is my destiny. Think about that for a moment. What is the destiny of Jesus Christ? He was raised from the dead and he ascended to the Father where he reigns in power. You know, I've told you before, my father is struggling somewhat, even though he's a lifelong Christian, struggling somewhat, what heaven will be like, will he know my mother? Things like that. And I'll go to the Bible and I'll point things out, but he can't quite get the concept in his head and he is concerned about it. Well, really, I, I can't flesh out heaven for you either. I can't tell you what it's going to be like. The Bible sets it forth in quite strong imagery in the book of Revelation. Golden streets, everything else. It'll be wonderful. But I still can't quite picture it. Can you be honest? We're not there yet. I can tell you about a beautiful mountain scene that I have seen, but you're not there yet. You really don't know what I'm talking about. 
I can tell you about a terrific sunset that I have seen, unusual. Just as the moon was going to swallow Miami, I saw it, but you didn't see it. It's very difficult to try to imagine things that you not only don't have an analogy for, that you almost have no reference. And yet, what this means is, if my destiny is linked to Christ's destiny, where he is, I shall be also. That is God's assurance to us, that whatever he is heir to, I too share in that. He is my elder brother. He is the true heir. And I'm a joint heir with him. You know, that's a wonderful thing to know in this world of shifting sand. Where things can and do go wrong all the time. Where there are disappointments. If you think about it from life, from, if you will, from purely a human standpoint, apart from God, it is absolutely a disaster. Why? You suffer a lot in life, and then you're gone. Someone has described life as a terminal illness with misery and suffering as the symptoms. And apart from Christ, that is true. It is also true that your sufferings in life have meaning. Just as Christ's sufferings have meaning, your sufferings have meaning. You know, I've been thinking about suffering. I haven't suffered a lot, and probably many of you haven't. But you may in the future. Let me tell you that people, Christians like you and me, are being absolutely run out of the Middle East in every country. It's the greatest crime on the face of the earth. Lands taken, burned down, can't even meet in their churches. It is estimated in about 20 to 30 more years there will be no Christians and Jews in the Middle East, except in Israel, if that Lord tarries. It's, it's, it's an awful thing that's taking place before our eyes. How much are you reading about it? Where have you found it? What page in the New York Times have you found that story? What about the Washington Post or the LA Times? Where have you heard it on CBS or ABC or NBC? Have you heard it? Oh, here and there. And then it's almost an equivalency like Christians and Jews were fighting in Nigeria. <laughs> it's one-sided, my friend. It's one-sided. But I got a terrible inkling this week that maybe you're going to suffer more in the future, and I'm going to as well. The IRS targeted more Christians, we found out, than any other group. And many of the most important Christian organizations have been audited. Why? To suppress their voice. I wonder if this is a harbinger of things. Sociologist at Boston University made a wonderful statement. He said, if Sweden is the least religious country on the face of the earth, and India is the most, America is a nation of Indians ruled by Swedes. Our elites are out of touch with ordinary life, with the religious experience of Christ. And that's been so for a while, but now the boldness is coming out. 
the boldness is coming out. Our universities are not places where you're going to be encouraged to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Just not going to be. And when you send your children off, you have to know that. That professor is not going to lead your child to Christ. They're not going to give an invitation. Come receive the Lord. But remember, you have a spirit. The spirit of God in you. And greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. You don't have to be afraid. I don't know what will happen in the future. Will we be persecuted like other Christians in other nations? I don't know. I happen to be quite optimistic that we won't. But nonetheless, you have a spirit that works in you that is the spirit of redemption and testifies to your spirit. I heard a joke. Let me see if I can tell it briefly. Preacher gets up and says to his congregation, I have a confession to make. Even though I've married, I've spent an awful lot of time in the arms of another woman. And then he said, my mother. A preacher read that joke who can tell jokes very well. And he got up to use that. He thought it was really a slick joke. He practiced and practiced all week long, and he got up in the pulpit and says, you know, even though I'm married, I've... I spend an awful lot of time in the arms of another woman. And then he began to cast about for the punchline. He said, I just can't remember. You don't want to forget a punchline like that. But I'll tell you what you don't want to forget either that the Holy Spirit of God dwells in you. You have received Christ. You have received the Spirit of Christ, even the Holy Spirit. And he testifies to you that God loves you and you belong to him. And nothing in this life shall separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Praise be to God. Amen. Amen.